Well, hi, everybody, and welcome to the Living with Power Hope podcast. Lena Ebujamra here, and I am excited to be with you and so pumped about the upcoming holiday season. We are just about at Thanksgiving. We've got an awesome holiday season ahead of us. Christmas is everybody's favorite time of year. Honestly, Thanksgiving is mine. I love the food. I love the no pressure. Show up, enjoy the meal, watch some football, do a little turkey trot. It is the best. And then after that, there's a lot of stress that goes into Christmas. But listen, we're going to do this together. And what's going to make it better is that every week we're going to get together and we're going to be sharing some content from Don't Tell Anyone You're Reading This. My new book came out in October. I hope you've read it. If you haven't, today is going to be an awesome day. I'm going to share with you a couple of chapters that I have read. They're part of the Audible. Next week, we're going to do another chapter. And then we're going to give you some special messages in the weeks to come uh, revolving around this topic and really the idea of intimacy with God and whatever it is that stands in the way of your intimacy with God, man, we want to destroy that. We want to be close to God and kill anything that stands in that way. So we are all about God here and Jesus Christ. We are all about God's word. If you're checking in for the first time, we are so happy you're here. If you're wondering, man, what is this book about? Listen, you want to listen to today's reading. Uh, don't make it at double speed. It'll make you dizzy. But let me let me share with you what some people have said about this uh, book. Janet wrote, I think this book is a must read for anyone dealing with shame and a longing for healing, whether the struggle is of a sexual nature or something else that has become an idol in one's life. Uh, thank you, Janet. Love that. How about Kathleen? She said, a much needed discussion about a topic that is often avoided in the church. Uh, I promise you, this is not going to embarrass you. Uh, this uh, reading is going to be encouraging. I believe it'll want you to buy the book. Really, honestly, we would love for you to get it. We would love for you to leave a review on Amazon. And mostly, we just want to connect you with God and his word. So if you've got questions about culture, Christian culture, life in general, uh, what we're doing here on earth, what your purpose in life is, you've come to the right place. Uh, we've got tons of content for you, but mostly know that we're praying for you. And uh, listen, in a minute, I'll start the reading of the intro in chapter one and come back next week for the next chapter. Uh, but until then, let us uh, tune in, uh, listen up, and uh, see what God might do with these words. Introduction. Don't skip this. Birds do it. Bees do it. Even educated fleas do it. Ella Fitzgerald. There are at least three ways Christians think about sex these days. There's the prudish perspective. You're the folks who were discipled in the 80s. You have black and white notions about sex. You would never be caught watching that movie or TV show that everyone is talking about. You would never allow yourself to read that trashy book and would never click on that website. Most of you are married and have occasional sex, and when you do, it's not that exciting. You're used to blaming your spouse for your bedroom stats. Most of you are white, saved by the blood, and transformed forever. You have a Bible verse for every problem in life that you're quick to hand out to anyone you think is bleeding. You're never going to admit to reading this book, but might make an extra effort to give it a one-star review on Amazon, just in case anyone else is tempted to read it. Nice to meet you. Then there's the millennial and younger perspective. You're much more avant-garde and hipster in your approach to sex. You're not quite a hedonist because you're a Christian after all, but God forbid you be described as prudish. You started elementary school around the time Steve Jobs dropped the first iPhone into the world. You grew up in a culture where sex and nudity have become the norm. Your access to X-rated content is one click away, and you're rolling your eyes at me right now. I mean, who needs yet another Christian book about sex, especially one written by a Christian author who is a 50-year-old virgin at that gulp? 
You are certain I'm about to embarrass myself and regurgitate a list of archaic do's and don'ts into the world. You're not even convinced that the list I'll share is in the Bible anyway. Swipe left, move on. But before you do, let me be clear about one thing. I'm also the doctor you'll be calling when you need your plan B and birth control pills refilled and when you're freaking out about that rash on your penis. It's okay. I'm not one to hold on to grudges. Plus, there are a couple of things you and I have in common. We share an extreme comfort talking about sex and a deep sense of compassion for sexual minorities. And we've both seen it all. So sit tight. You might actually like what I have to say. Wink emoji. And then there's the rest of us. We are not a category. We are not a specific age group or a demographic. We are normal Christians who never in a million years thought we'd still be wrestling with our sex lives. We are men and women who have experienced the awesome love of Jesus and received him into our hearts with abandon. We committed to following him. We read our Bibles and pray. We go to church and have Christian friends. We want to do right. We long to be more holy. Yet here we are, 5, 10, or 15 years into our Christian walk, and for the life of us, we can't figure out why we keep failing in this one area of our lives. We utterly hate that we still do what we hate. We know right from wrong and want to do right, but instead we are tired, broken, and maybe even cynical about change after all these years. Oh, we have our good days, but our bad days are still far too common and repetitive. And our worst nightmare is that we be found out. We hate hypocrisy, yet we are living two lives. We hang on to the truth that God does remove our sins as far as the East is from the West, but lately, we're not even sure about that anymore. We feel we've overplayed our hand. We're not sure that change, at least for us, is possible. We are weary from the battle inside us and we long to be free. We are the church. I don't know about you, but I'm sick of failing in my private life. I'm sick of worrying that if I don't get this right, my story will become a public debacle. I don't want a public reckoning of my sin. I just really want to change. I want to experience victory in my private life. I decided to write this book one morning in January as I was scrolling through Instagram and landed on the news that yet another relatively famous Christian leader had been fired for moral failure. The details were uncannily similar. The only difference was that this time, I actually knew this worship leader. I had sat under his worship leading while attending a megachurch and serving on their staff. I had been deeply moved by his songs. I had watched him become the heart of our church's worship band. Most people who had been at the church for a decade or more were very well aware that this man had had a lapse in his moral journey when he was young and single. He was asked to leave his job as new worship leader back then, and two years later, he was repentant, forgiven, and reinstated. He then happily married and lived ever after, or so it seemed, but all was not well in his private life. For several months, this worship leader had led a secret affair. The rest, as they say, became tragedy. How could this worship leader go from writing the most tenderhearted, touching worship songs about God on Sundays to hook it up with his mistress on Mondays? If this worship leader, whom I knew and respected, managed to make a mess of his life, what was keeping me from doing the same? Something snapped in my brain when I read his story. The problem of sexual sin, a problem I am enlightened enough to know is rampant in the church, suddenly became very, very personal and very, very real. Do you think I'm naive? Do I sound like an old-fashioned Christian who blushes at the word sex and still watches Little House on the Prairie? Think again. As a pediatric emergency physician, I've heard it all, and I never blush. You can't shock me even if you tried. 
I've heard the good, the bad, and the ugly when it comes to sex. I am fully aware that humans have a sex drive and are motivated by lust. And I am fully aware that Christians struggle equally with lust and are taught to control that lust, often unsuccessfully. I was in my late teens when I heard the salacious details of the fallen pastor at a tiny little Baptist church in Wisconsin. One day, we showed up to Sunday night church and to the announcement that this leader had been removed from his role as pastor due to an extramarital affair. Ew, I thought to myself, who would ever want to have sex with him? Yet we sat on our pews, shaking our heads in bafflement. How could a pastor fall so quickly? Since then, Christian leaders and their sexual failures have become the norm. Just about every week brings new gossip of another leader with a bombshell story. Like gnats at a barbecue, the rate of failure in Christian leadership has become so rampant it's hard to keep up. Lives have been ruined, families have been destroyed, and the church is imploding all for a few seconds of pleasure. Few things have rocked the evangelical world in the last decade more than the news of Ravi Zacharias' sexual perversion. Here was the image of Christian virtue, a man whose very essence was the picture of integrity. He had been one of us, the untouchables. Yet today, Ravi's life and ministry have blown up into a million little pieces, leaving his victims wounded and some bleeding to death, others a pulp of their former life. How did a man like Ravi Zacharias spend his life teaching Christians to think, only to unravel posthumously where it was evident that in his private world, he did anything but think? Over the years, we've convinced ourselves that there are those who struggle with lust, like you and me, and then there are the perfs. They're the ones wasting their lives attending Celebrate Recovery meetings every week at church. They are typically men, and they indeed have a serious problem. They are porn addicts and sexual predators, and if we're being honest, we perhaps question their salvation. They are the reason their lives are unraveling. They barely even deserve our mercy. Over the years, we've divided the church into us and them. We hear the statistics and nod our heads in agreement. Indeed, there is a problem in American Christianity. We assume the problem is out there and that we are somehow immune to it. Stories like Ravi's shake us to the core because if a spiritual giant or a seemingly faithful worship leader has the capacity to fall so horrifically low, what's to say we won't? The truth is that we're not immune to sexual struggle. We're not immune to failure. We're not immune to our lives unraveling at the speed of light because our wants and desires have taken over our thinking. We need to understand why. We need to understand why we continue to do the things we hate. We need to understand why we can, on one hand, so easily talk about how sexualized our culture is and how bad the entertainment industry has become, while on the other hand, secretly revel in the same smutty content that our non-believing friends openly admit to watching. This book is not a book about porn. It's not a book about sexual purity and the rewards God gives to his sexually faithful followers. This is not a book about singles and sex, nor is it a book about married sex. God knows I don't know a thing about that. This is a book about the struggle with our desires and why so many committed followers of Jesus are still failing in our sexual lives and how to change. In other words, this is a book about sex for every Christian who longs to be free from sexual struggle. It turns out that we all do it. We all struggle with some unwanted sexual desire or another. We all regularly give in to our sexual urges instead of choosing holiness. We all hold on to our favorite vices like little blankies, refusing to let go of them no matter what it costs. We fool ourselves into thinking that we're okay because no one has found out about our dirty little secrets yet, or because we've been clean for a month or a year. 
But we know that given enough time, we're going back there to the comfort of our little blankies. Instead, you and I are going to sit down and have a long talk about sex. We're not going to talk about sex in the hush-hush way our parents did. We're not going to talk about sex in the voyeuristic and self-righteous way of judging others while enjoying the details of their dirty stories. We're not going to talk about sex in the shaming and judgmental way of reducing each person to our most basic sinful sexual instincts. No, let's talk about sex in a very practical and real way that will finally lead us to freedom. I'm sick of failing in my private life. I'm sick of worrying about whether someday there will be a public reckoning if I don't stop my own cycle of sin and shame. Perhaps this is my public reckoning. I'm not willing to hide the truth anymore. I have struggled in my sex life, and I am tired of failing. If you long for change and revival, and you dream of a day where the sun can finally break through into the darkness that has become your home, keep on reading. If you're sick of watching Christian leaders fall with their harrowing stories of indiscretions and want to understand why the stories keep on happening, then keep reading. If you're a Christ-following man or woman with a human body, keep reading. It's time we have a real talk about sex. Denial. I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. Bill Clinton, 1998. I don't really have a problem with sex. I mean, I've never even had sex. The first real date I had was to a citywide Bible study. I was in my mid-twenties. Yes, ma'am, I'm one of those weirdos. As a Lebanese-born follower of Jesus who moved to the USA at the end of my high school years, I still didn't know what a purity ring was, but I might as well have worn a shirt that said, I'm a virgin and will stay that way until I'm married. Six months later, that man and I were engaged. Then two weeks before the wedding, we broke up. I also got engaged to the second guy I dated seriously. This time, I was older and wiser, in my mid-30s now. My plan was to enjoy kissing him until we got married. He pulled a fast one on me, though. He'd heard I was committed to staying pure until marriage. He told me he had decided to try something new. I suppose, in hindsight, our paths had crossed at a time he was trying to stay clean. He told me he wanted to wait until the wedding day to kiss me. I wish I could say I had stars in my eyes, but I think what I saw that night in the mirror was just a transient bout of nausea. Needless to say, that relationship didn't last either. I'm one of the few humans on this planet who can say that I was engaged to a man I never even kissed. So you see why for years I told myself that I didn't have a problem with sex. I worked with a Christian nurse once who showed up late to work. When we asked her why, she told us that her husband had been arrested by the FBI. We wanted to know why. I don't remember if her tears were angry or sad, but what she told us shocked us. This father of two, self-proclaimed Christian, was arrested for child porn. He had been monitored for some time by the FBI, and after the sting operation was completed, his house was raided and he was put in prison. Now this was a guy who had a problem with sex. I also knew a woman at my church who was married to a man addicted to porn. She found out about it one day, or maybe it was her child who found the porn, Needless to say, it put a dent in their love life. For years, he promised he'd get clean. He went to counseling. He went to rehab. He promised he'd never do it again. But he never could stop watching. A couple of decades later, she divorced him. I guess you can say that this guy had a problem with sex too. But not me. I don't have a problem with sex. Or as Eliza Doolittle liked to say, I'm a good girl, I am. I grew up in a Christian home. I went to a Christian and very strict university. I worked at a Christian camp every summer from my senior year in high school until I went to medical school. 
I didn't even have time for sex. And yet, I've spent my entire adulthood trying to convince myself that I don't have a problem with sex. But why would I spend so much energy on something that wasn't a problem? It took me two years of therapy to finally find the courage to talk about my sex baggage. I didn't know where to start. I was partly mad at God for holding out on me in what everyone else in the world seemed to enjoy. I was partly embarrassed by my own inability to get this one area of my life resolved. After stumbling through my story, I paused for a moment, then I made this statement. For someone who doesn't have a sex life, I sure spend a lot of time thinking about sex. You do have a sex life, my therapist responded. You just don't have a healthy and fulfilling one. I'd never thought about it that way. Christians are funny about sex. We're a lot like the medical workers I know who spend their lives educating their patients about the harm of smoking, then huddle around the exit doors of the emergency department, taking one last drag of their cigarettes. They call it an addiction, and it often is. While I appreciate the language of addiction when it comes to substance abuse, it's fascinating to see it cross over to the sexual struggles that are common in the Christian walk. Is it easier to use addiction language than to own up to our recurrent sexual mishaps? Does it feel more clinical and excusable to hide behind the label of addiction? God, on the other hand, calls sinful sexual acts we can't stop doing slavery. It's a pretty harsh word, but a lot more fitting. We are controlled by the things we obey. And for most of my life, I have had one master, represented by the letter L, for lust. Remember your high school mandatory reading list? The old scarlet letter still makes that list. Poor Hester Prynne. She knows what she's done, and to her credit, she owns it. She stands up straight on the scaffolding, admitting her wrong. The people in the village can barely look at her. They are angered by her quiet dignity and honest beauty. For the rest of her life, she wears her scarlet letter not with pride, but in truth. She is what she is, and she owns it, but not the father of her baby. He hides beneath the safety of his frock. He doesn't have the courage to admit that he's just like Hester, a slave to his own passions. But deep down, he knows, and he can't live with the guilt. Given enough time, he imposes his own punishment on himself. Eventually, everyone else in the village finds out too. By then, it's too late. Arthur Dimsdale has already died. Why are Christians in such deep denial over our sexual struggle? Why can't we stop pointing fingers at others and own that we are just as broken and desperate as everyone else? Even more perplexing, why can't we stop doing what we hate? I hate statistics, but they do make a point. About half of Americans ages 18 to 30 who are practicing Christians actively seek out porn at some point in a given year. One-fifth of practicing Christians ages 18 to 24 actively seek out porn weekly. Over one in three practicing Christian millennials ages 25 to 30 actively seek out porn at least monthly. Nearly one in five practicing Christian married men actively seek out porn at least monthly. 15% of Christian women say they watch porn at least once a month. Only 13% of Christian women say they never watch porn. Over one in five youth pastors currently struggle with porn use. Over 94% of youth pastors and 92% of senior pastors believe porn is a bigger problem for the church now than it was 20 years ago. Protestants who believe that the Bible is the actual Word of God and is to be taken literally are statistically identical to other Americans in most social media use. These are just porn stats. 
I haven't even started listing the divorce statistics in the church, nor the premarital fornication stats, nor the sexual abuse stats in the church. Yet today's Christians are standing on the rooftops, waging a war against the culture over immorality. Christians are heartbroken over America's drifting from a biblical sexual ethic. They have sounded the alarm and are warning the culture to beware of the fire that's coming while their own homes are burning down and they linger inside, unaware of the ashes rising up in their midst. Christians have somehow bought the rhetoric that the greatest threat to American Christianity is a liberal president, or a left-heavy House of Representatives, or the gay agenda. Josh McDowell, author and Christian leader, sees it differently, and he may be right. He says that it's porn that is the greatest threat to American Christianity. The moment we neglected our own personal holiness is the moment we lost our voice in this culture. There is a cognitive dissonance in the church. We all know it. The millennials were the loudest to point it out. They started leaving their churches in droves. Can you blame them? The amount of energy Christ-following Christians have spent condemning sexual sin is exhausting. If only that same energy were spent on our own personal holiness. I had a 17-year-old patient who came to the ER because she told her mom that she had a rash. When I finally made it to her room and asked her to show me her rash, she lifted her arm and I saw a hole so big in her armpit that I could almost put my entire fist in it. I looked at her mom with a horrified expression and asked why she hadn't brought her in sooner. The poor mom told me that she hadn't known about it until that day. I looked at the patient whose eyes were downcast in shame. She was too embarrassed to answer my question. She was hunched over, desperate to hide. Shame doesn't always make a lot of sense. Was she ashamed for something she didn't even cause? Or was it shame because she had hidden it for so long when she could have gotten better if only she'd come out of hiding and asked for help? I waited a beat until she finally looked up with tears in her eyes. And that's when I recognized that face. It was the face of denial. You see, I'd worn that face before but not anymore. My name is Lena, and I've never had sex, but I do have a problem with sex. All right, guys, I hope that has encouraged you. I hope it has made you curious as to the book, Don't Tell Anyone You're Reading This, uh, A Christian Doctor's Thoughts on Sex, Shame, and Other Troublesome Issues. We are living in a crazy time. Listen, it's been said that sexual purity is a test of our time. I believe that to be true. If you've been curious about my life, uh, my struggles, then get the book. It'll encourage you. I really believe it. I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't be talking about it if I didn't think so. And so, uh, we uh, would direct you to either Amazon or any bookstore by you, or you can check out more content and more information about the book. There's a great book club guide on drlinabook.com. Otherwise, you know how to hit livingwithpower.org. You can find all sorts of things there. Hey, we dropped the app. We updated it, cleaned it up. It is available for your use. If you are a fan of free biblical content, check out Living With Power uh, app on Android or Apple. And listen, enjoy the week. We will be back together again next week. It's going to be a big week, a lot of travel. We're praying for you, praying for your safety. If you want to send me a message, say hi. It's been a while since I've heard from you. I'd love to hear from you. Have an awesome, awesome weekend, and I'll see you next week.